0: Well, welcome everybody, it's good to see you guys this new year, hope you had great holidays. Welcome everybody watching online and at the Montrose Building and our live sites. Thanks for joining us as well, and it's great to be together. I, um, before I jump in, I want to re-emphasize uh, something that was talked about earlier, and that is the Discovery Group. And uh, if you have never gone through Discovery, or if it's been so long that you no longer remember what's in Discovery Group. Uh, really 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 encourage you to to do that Um, here at grace our kind of goal is for you to grow spiritually for you to own your faith and understand it and even be able to navigate it and for you to grow to know and love Jesus and and to follow him and so there's a lot of focus on kind of you as an individual and then making sure that a big church feels small so that you can actually access what you need to access and be connected and cared for the way that you need to be. But it's also important to realize that you're a part of something much bigger, right? And that's part of what Discovery Group does. So for instance, just at Christmas time, there would have been over 8,000 people that would have come to services just here at the Bath Campus. 13,000 over all eight of our campuses. A couple hundred folks accepted Christ over the Christmas Uh, season through those services. In fact, some of you might have done that. Uh, You saw teams in Mexico and the students out at Kalahari, and there's teams in Brazil and uh, Chad, Africa, and Haiti. And... Grace is literally all over the country and all over the world, and we want you to know and to connect with Jesus, but we also want you to know that you're a part of that bigger thing that's going on. So when you serve and you teach and you disciple other people and you give financially and all that kind of stuff, that literally goes out across the globe, and discovery helps you to get a hold of all of that. Uh, it'll help you, especially if you just accepted Christ recently, it'll help you learn to navigate your faith and your faith journey, uh, but it'll also help you to kind of understand all that Grace is doing and why we do what we're doing and, and what we're, uh, what you're really a part of. So really try to come out to that. It's January 19th. Get your phone out right now or just click off Facebook or Snapchat and, and jump over your calendar and put that in there real quick and uh, come to that. We'll get, we serve Chipotle, so everybody under 30, we're willing to feed you uh, Chipotle. And I'll be there, so hey. <laughs> you know. And so uh, come out, we'll teach that first seminar. You'll get to know some folks. It's a really, really good investment of your time and energy, and, and we want you to be a part of it. So try to prioritize that, okay, in, in this new year. So we had a great Christmas season. We're jumping into 2020, and uh, to kind of open up uh, our teaching year, we want to start by launching into this series, The Beginner's Guide to Hating Your Life. And what this, what we're going to do here for the next probably four or five weeks, is we're going to take a hard look at what Jesus says it means to really follow Him. If I said I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, or I'm a Christian, or maybe even a church goer that would kind of be on the Jesus team we would all kind of have like definitions in our own mind about what that means right so a lot of folks when they think about being a christian or a christ follower we would think about that through like a religious category like i'm a christian instead of a muslim or a hindu or a buddhist kind of a thing uh, others of us would think about that kind of historically like i my mom and dad grew up going to church and they took me to church and so when i think about going to a church I think about going to a Christian church uh, some folks think about their faith as a, a life balance issue right so I'm gonna start working out I'm gonna eat clean and I'm gonna work on my spirituality and I'm gonna be kind of a life balanced kind of a person and then a lot of times honestly when people think about following Jesus we think about behavior modification right so I'm not gonna smoke drink chew, date girls who do or cheer for Clemson which God hates but <laughs> I'm not gonna do any of those things, right? I'm gonna alter my behavior and that kind of puts me into this camp over here. And those things aren't all bad. I don't, I don't want you to hear me say that. Like a lot of those things have really good ramifications and there's positive things to them. And many times that's all well-intentioned, but is that what it means to follow Jesus? It's a very different question. So if Jesus was looking and saying, I want you to be my follower, or the word he uses a lot is my disciple, which means follower. I want want you to be my disciple. I want you to learn to act like, think like, love like, and invest your life like the way I would. Does he mean what we mean by it? And so that's kind of the question we're gonna wrestle with. And and we're gonna take the the first few weeks of the year, and we're actually gonna hang out in one chapter in the Bible. It's Luke chapter 14. And we're going to hang out there because in that place, it's one of the places where Jesus is kind of hyper clear and kind of like black and white a little bit about what it means to follow him. He he puts down this really strong definition. And so we want to look at what he says and how he defines it. And then we'll press that back into our lives, make sure that we're talking about the same things Jesus is talking about. And then over the course of the next few weeks, I'll give you kind of handles and pathways so that, that will help us to align kind of our life and our definition with Jesus' life and Jesus' definition, okay? So what we're going to do this weekend is we're going to start at the end. So this is what's happening in Luke chapter 14. Jesus is, is kind of in the, kind of getting into the peak of his ministry. A bunch of people paying attention to him. A bunch of people are kind of hopping on the Jesus bandwagon. He sits down with a bunch of religious leaders, and he has this dinner with them, and he starts to press into their definitions of what it means to be a person who honors and follows God, and he uses a set of parables. A parable is a spiritual story that, it's a spiritual truth that's illustrated with a story and and that Jesus uses. And So he uses this set of parables to kind of walk them through and press into their definitions, And at the very end, kind of after that dinner, he's out and about walking with people, and he comes up with this very clear statement about what it means to follow him. So we're going to start with the clear statement, and then over the next few weeks, we're going to back into those parables. So grab your Bibles if you got them, and let's go to Luke chapter 14. If you need a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. It's page 848, and those Bibles that are in the chairs... And this is all on the app and, and on the, the website if you're, if you're watching online or just want to use your phone. And let's start with this clear definition that Jesus lays out, and kind of this black and white line that he draws for people to connect to. So verse 25, chapter 14 of the book of Luke, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, here it is, Ready? If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And who does, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Wouldn't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king was about to go to war against another king. When he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still far off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So he goes through this really strong definition, and he says, listen, he says, if, if you won't hate your father, mother, sister, brother, your wife, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. If you won't carry your cross, you cannot be my disciple. And then later on, verse 33, if you don't give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. And then in the middle there, he uses a couple of illustrative things. And he says, you wouldn't, you wouldn't start a building without figuring out what it costs to build it, because if you run out of money and you don't finish it, then everybody's going to laugh at you. And then he uses the, 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 the illustration with the king. You wouldn't go to war without a confidence that you're sure that you can win the war. You wouldn't start something and not be able to follow through or achieve it. You would sit down first and figure it out. So Jesus is talking. Remember, all these, these large crowds, he's, he's kind of rock star Jesus at this point. All these people are tying into him. They've heard about his miracles. They've heard he's a great teacher. All those kind of things, and so these crowds are gathering, and they're all saying, "We are Christ followers. We are Christians, right?" Is the way that we would say it today. We're on board with Jesus, and he turns to them and he says to them, "Hey, let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about that for a second. You're excited about following me. You're excited about these parts of me that you have heard or seen or think that you know." But let's talk about what I mean about following me. And let's do that before you sign up to follow me. Before you declare yourself, and before you say that's what I'm giving my life to, let me make sure that you understand it. Because you wouldn't start a house, you wouldn't start a war, you would would think it through, you would sit down, you would process what the real definition is, and you may be thinking this, but I mean that, so let me talk to you about what that means, right? Now, we run into that all the time, right? There's all kinds of us who would say that I'm, I'm a Christ follower. We'd have this all throughout our planet, right? People who say I'm a Christ follower. And when they say that, even you and I cringe when they say that. When that guy's on TV, and he's speaking on behalf of Christians everywhere, and you're just wanting to crawl under the table because you would look and say, that is not at all what it means to be, even we would cringe at that. Some of us who would say, I I wanna be on the Jesus team and I have these expectations of what God is going to do for me, and then God doesn't do it, and we stop and we start and we pull back or we make this big declarative statement and then we kinda let it wash away, And people ridicule, Uh, oh, you're the Christian, you're the church person, right? Because we started it, but we didn't really buy into it. And Jesus is saying here, why don't we like pause and make sure you know what you're buying into, okay? Because when I say, be my disciple, these are the things that I mean. And he kind of hits the meat of this in verse 26. He says, if anybody comes to me, and does not hate father, mother, wife, child, brothers, sisters, even their own life, that person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. When Jesus uses this phrase here, does not hate, he obviously is not saying to us that you have to go hate your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, even your own children, even your own life. That would be contradictory if he meant that in a literal phrase. He's using that phrase in a comparative tone, right? A comparative tone. What he's saying is this. In comparison to your commitment to me, your love for your commitment to father, mother, sister, brother, even your own life would look like hate. I am to take number one place in your life. And all of these other relationships are now secondary to who I am and what I am like. In a comparative tone, the person who has the greatest amount of affection in a disciple's life is me. The person who has the greatest amount of authority in a disciple's life is me. The person who has the greatest amount of governance in a disciple's life is me. And my disciples choose that. They, they sit down, they think it through, they understand it, and they decide that they're going to place me in the point of highest affection, highest loyalty, highest authority, highest governance. And in comparison to where other people would rank in that, it's going to feel like, hey, they've chosen to displace these relationships and to put me in that primary spot. And it was, it was not a romantic thing. It wasn't a kick. It wasn't like a fad diet that I got on. It's gonna be gone by Monday. It was a life decision and they measured it and they thought about it and they locked into it and they chose to do it, see. And then, they live that way. They live that way, not that way, because of the decision that they made. I was talking uh, a few, a couple months ago with a friend here at church, young guy who uh, asked to get together with me, so he grabbed some coffee. He said, hey, I wanted some counsel. I think I'm going to join the army, and I want to know what you think about that. And I said, okay, well, talk me through your thinking. Well, I've been thinking, I've been praying, I haven't really had a great life direction since I got out of college, nothing really interests me, I've always been interested in the military, I did all of this homework, I did all of this background, I understood my options, and I think I've decided to, to go after it and to join the military. What do you hope to get out of the military? Well, I hope to get some discipline and some life direction and some steps and a career, et cetera, and I'm excited about that. I said, okay. I said, well, that sounds like a, a great you know, option and I'm all for joining the military and all those kind of things. I said, I just wanna make sure that, that you're clear on one thing, right? Because you're asking my opinion, so I'm gonna give it to you. You are a very free spirit. You're like borderline hippie boy, <laughs> right? And that's the way that you think. You understand, just, I just wanna make sure you understand, When you join the United States Army, you understand you are property of the United States government. You do what you're told to do, when you're told to do it, and how you're told to do it. And if you wake up on Tuesday and just feel in your soul that it's not the best thing for you to obey an order, that's not gonna go well. You understand that, right? And he said, yes. He goes, that's part of what I need in my life. I said, okay. As long as you know that your body belongs, your soul belongs to Jesus, the rest of you belongs to Uncle Sam when you sign on that dotted line. You got that, right? I got that, okay? And he, he did join the army and he's doing great, right? Now, what did he do? He sat down first. He decided, see? You know it's not this, it's this. And what you think about this or your interpretation of this or your feeling about this, it doesn't change what it is. If you wake up and you're in the military one day and you decide that what the army should actually do is this instead, what the army means to me is that doesn't work because you enlisted, so to say. That's what Jesus is pointing at here. He's saying, listen, these relationships are great, but my disciples have made a decision. And the decision is that I am gonna take that place of authority. You cannot be my disciple and, and have somebody else be in greater authority or governance in your life than me. That's literally not what it means, it doesn't, it, it, it's not what it means to be my disciple. Well, I feel that way or I think that way, It's great. It's not that your feelings are horrible or that your thoughts are dumb. It's just not what that is. You cannot be my disciple if you won't carry your cross. Like you can't do it. My disciples are cross carriers, that's what they are. So, so you should think about that. But if you enlist, when, when it's time to carry the cross, it, it's just the nature of being a disciple. It's what it is. You cannot cannot be my disciple if you don't give up everything. That doesn't mean take a vow of poverty. What that means is I give up claims or rights to all aspects of my life, right? I, I became a disciple of Jesus Christ. He defines me, he directs me, I don't do that anymore. That was my decision. That's what my disciples do. That's what it means to be my disciple. And if you're not signing up for that, then you're actually not signing up to be my disciple. Now, this teaching is hard. This is hard. I mean, this is the first weekend of the new year. I should have given you like 10 steps to be happy, but take me out for lunch. I'll write a list on my way over and tell you how to do that. But this is a hard teaching because what Jesus is doing is he's drawing this very strong line where he would look and say, no, this is what it means to be my disciple. Nothing else means that. Regardless of how you feel or what you think or how you've interpreted, it doesn't mean that. It means this. And to be, therefore, a disciple of Jesus Christ means that there's going to be a radical change, there's gonna be intrusive truths that come into my life, there's gonna be a shift in who I am, It's the nature of discipleship. Now, why is Jesus pressing into this so hard? Because he's helping us to understand what we're signing up for. Being a disciple of Christ is by nature gonna put us against the grain of ourselves, right? It's gonna put us against the grain of our natural instincts. And he wants us to think about that ahead of time. This is the way that every human being thinks. When we look at our lives, and we think to ourselves, what do I value the most and who do I value the most? Who do I listen to the most? <clears throat> who has the most authority in my life? Whose opinions do I trust the most? Who, who, who am I most uh, focused on pleasing and making happy? The number one person in every human being's life is themselves. I am the one, me. I trust me. I listen to me, I, I, I want to make sure that I'm happy and I'm comfortable and I'm getting what I want. Every human being is like that, me too, me especially, right? I believe me. I believe that I am very wise. I believe that I make great decisions. I believe that I interpret the Bible correctly. I believe that I'm funny and I know I'm sexy, right? I know all those things about me and I trust me, I take the number one position of authority, governance, and affection in my own life. It's fascinating the way that Jesus works through this list in verse 26. He says, if you don't forsake even yourself, you can't be the focal point of your own life and be my disciple. You can't be in the number one position that I'm supposed to be in and call yourself my disciple. That would make no sense. That's not what a disciple is. And then he starts working down this list. Probably the, the thing that I trust after myself the most is my father and mother or what I call our past, see? After myself, what I trust the most is my upbringing. And my past is what makes the most sense to me. I want my dad to be happy. I want my mom to be happy. And the norms and the teachings and the philosophies and the goals and the wins and the losses and the celebration and the shames that they raise me in is what governs my life. We'll even say things like this. I'm a product of my environment. What dad did or didn't do, what mom did or didn't do, I'm a product of that. We'll say things like, that's just the way that I am. Well, why are you that way? Somebody taught you to be that way. So we will trust our past. So Jesus comes and he says, listen, if you don't hate like yourself, displace yourself from that position of authority, affection, and governance, and even your father and mother, if you don't displace them as the number one authority in your life, the voice in your head, the instinct that you trust, that's the way dad did it. Mom always said, if you don't displace that, you cannot be my disciple. My disciples don't listen to their mom more than they listen to me. My disciples aren't governed by their dad's values more than they're governed by my values. It's not what they are. It's not what it means to be a disciple. So if you don't hate that or walk away from that or displace that, you cannot be my disciple. And he goes on, sister, brother, I call that culture. See, we're all raised in a culture. We're all raised in a way of thinking. We, we, would, we would step into a family system or even broader into kind of a regional system, even out to a national system, and we would look and say, well, these are the things that are right and these are the things that are wrong because my culture tells me that. My culture I was raised in taught me that I'm supposed to be a winner and the most important thing I can do in life is win. I got I to gotta win Monopoly. I got to win Uno. I, I got I to gotta, I gotta win basketball. I got to win college. I got to win business. I have to win. Where did that come from? It's just my instinct. No, it isn't. You pick that value up somewhere. You adopted that value somewhere, right? Now... My culture taught me I'm supposed to be a loser. I have a poverty mindset. I have an instant gratification mindset. I have a I'll never accomplish anything mindset. I have a God thinks I'm the greatest thing that ever happened to planet Earth mindset. I have a God doesn't even know who I am or care about me mindset. Where does that come from? That is ingrained in us, which is the way I think. Wait a minute. In Christ, my mind is renewed. Those thoughts aren't governing me anymore. My my past and my culture is not what defines me. I'm a victim of, of abuse, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm the other thing, it's who I am, easy on that now. That can be what governs you, what is your authority, what is your place of affection, But a disciple of Jesus cannot. They would hate that, they would turn from it. See, they say I'm redefined by something different, something else. Jesus then adds in even your own spouse. I put this down as the other person, right? The other person. So those of us who who are married know how much influence our spouse has over us, right? I do not like happy, uh, Heidi to be unhappy. I do not like that at all. I do things for her I don't do for anybody else. I went I worked out with her the other day. I worked out with Heidi. I worked out. And the good news is I'm done for the year. But, the, but like, I'm sore. Like, why? Because she wanted to. She thought it would be fun, and then she, she lied to me a bunch about what it was going to be like. She said, there's a sauna, and then suddenly I'm lifting weights, and there I am, right, doing all that kind of stuff. I want her to be happy. If she is displeased, if she is upset, and vice versa, she wants me to be happy. She does not want my displeasure. I can't tell you The amount of couples that I've watched one of them pull the other one away from Christ. Because we'll yield. See, we'll yield to the other person. And you don't have to be married. That's why I put other person. Everybody has somebody in their ear that they yield to. It's your roommate. It's your best friend. For some parents, it's their children. And what the kids want and what they value, and suddenly a, a teenager is setting down the governance, the authority, and the affection of a family because we yield to it. We want them to tie it. We want to we know, and they rule and reign our lives. And Jesus would say, you, you cannot be my disciple if I'm not the one discipling you. If you're following your kid or your spouse or your mom or your buddies, the, the popular gang in high school, the others, then you're not following me. So for everybody, this is always kind of our path of, of influence, it's very, it's, there's nothing wrong with you or with me, it's just the way that we are on on our own nature. It's how we think and how we function. And then what we do is we say this, I I look out for me first, right? That's our instinct. And then my past ties in, the culture ties in, the other person, the other influencer in my life ties in. And then after all that's tied in, I will add God to it. And I will take any part of God or Christ at any point that he is useful or helpful to accomplishing those other goals, So God, if you will make me happy, I will adopt that part of you into my life. If you will give me my dreams, then I will will interact with you to the point that you are useful or helpful in me accomplishing what I want to accomplish. God, if, if you will do something with my past, if you'll get me sober, if you'll help me overcome my past, or make my past play out. Dad said to perform, if you will give me this deal or this position, God, and I'll welcome you into that place. God, if if you'll help me be who I wanna be, if you'll make the other person happy, I will adapt you and adopt you at whatever point that you are useful or helpful for me accomplishing my goals. And for most people our tendency is to set life up this way and plug God in wherever it's convenient for him to be plugged in. The parts of him that we like we lock on The parts of him that we don't like we reject or we change or we interpret. And Jesus looks and says that's not at all what I mean by being my disciple. You don't don't look at your drill sergeant and say, you know, the way that I interpret that order is. Why don't you do that? Because you know what you signed up for. You wouldn't think of doing that. And Jesus looks and says, Yeah, and unless unless you hate all of that comparatively, you can't be my disciple. It's not what it means to be my disciple. Unless you take up your cross, deal with the ramifications, the the lifestyle changes, the the investment changes, the the standing alone. Because when your others all think this, but you know Christ thinks this, and you have to stand alone, When dad always said this, but Jesus says this, you have to stand alone. Unless you take up your cross, you cannot be my disciple. It's what it means to be my disciple. Unless you give up everything, this adding Jesus to me is not me giving up everything. It's me making God convenient for me. Unless you give up everything, You cannot be my disciple. It's what it means to be my disciple. And Jesus is pressing in here, and he would look and say, listen, you have to make this shift. It's what it means to follow me. And we have to rearrange this order, this me first viewpoint, where it's me and then everybody else fits in, and God really fits in last is not the viewpoint of a disciple. The Christ first viewpoint is the viewpoint of the disciple. Everything starts with Jesus. He takes that place of highest authority, affection, and governance, and then he governs and defines everything underneath that. He governs and defines me. He makes me into who he has called me to be. I don't make him to meet my life. He makes me, he forms me, to mimic his life. He defines my past. I'm not defined by my past. My past is redefined. He makes all things new. The old is gone, the new has come. I'm not that event that happened to me. That event is simply a part of my story. It's not me. I am not that, that other identity. The identity of an addict, the identity of, a, of an abuse victim, the identity of a winner, my sexual identity, my family identity, that's not me. That, that's a part of my story. It's a part of my discipleship journey. I am, I am Christ, and Christ is in me. I'm defined by Christ, not these external things. My, my culture, my culture doesn't define Jesus there is, there is absolutely nothing new about a culture looking at the scripture or looking at Christ and saying Christ needs to catch up with the culture. That's, it's almost comical. How many times that has happened and how Jesus still reigns and all those cultures fall away and don't exist anymore. We don't change because culture, culture doesn't affect me. So now I have a, a middle school Jesus, a high school Jesus, a college Jesus, a Christ comes in and he defines my, my global culture, my national culture, and my personal culture, right? What I value, how I think. That's all defined by Christ. And Christ even affects my others. My others don't bend me in and out of my relationship with Christ. I am placed in my other's life to draw them to Christ. I'm not in Heidi's life to make her happy I'm in her life to refine her by the washing with water through the word. To help her to be spotless and blameless and, 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 and without wrinkles spiritually before Christ. That's my job. Not the happy wife, happy life. What are you talking about? See? My job is to love her and to know her. Her job is to love me and to know me and to help me grow and be who Christ has called me to be. She's not to turn my head. Neither is my friends or my roommate. Are my mom or my dad or my kids See? the jesus first mindset is this jesus is looking and saying "No, no no sit down think it through and if you sign the papers to enlist you're signing up for this that christ takes that first place that he defines that he directs that he is the object of highest affection and everything in your life is interpreted through who jesus is his heart his mind and how he thinks and that's what it means to be my disciple and he looks at this big crowd of people and he says guys you know i love you this is great let's just make sure we're talking about the same thing because you love my miracles, and you love my healing, and, and, and you love that I'm just kind of the, the, you know, the, the hottest trend in the, on the, in the culture right now. You're really into that. That's not what I'm here to do. I didn't teach and do miraculous things to gain popularity. I did all those things to demonstrate to you who I am. I am your Lord, I am your God, and if you are my disciple, you are signing up for me to be your Lord and your God, not your helper and your healthy balance or your religion or your tradition. Now come and follow me and my disciples decide that that's what they're going to do, right? Now, guys, there are big ramifications to that, right? There always are. And there's big ramifications to that stuff personally. And unless we walk into that's the place God has in our life, then what God wants to do in our life will never play out. By far, hands down, the biggest falsehood that's taught about God today is that God exists for us. And the old old timers used to call that heresy. It's heretical. That God exists for us, that God's job is to make me happy and healthy and wealthy and prosperous, that whatever I want or hope for, God will make come true. It's a me-first position. And here's the problem with that position. When I place myself in a me-first position and then demand that God deliver for me, I put myself in a, a 100% failed position. I only set myself up and got up for failure because God's job is not to give me whatever I want. Therefore, he will not answer all those prayers. Therefore, God can only let me down. By the way, that's true in all relationships. If I put myself in a me-first position in my marriage, if I look at Heidi and say, you, you, Heidi, you must make me happy. You must cause me to have peace. You must cause me to be in a good mood. You must fulfill me. You must bring contentment for my life. I have put her in a no-win situation. She will fail at that. It's impossible for her to do that in my life, and I have actually made her an idol. I'm asking her to do what only Christ can do in my life. I'm asking her to be God, and since she's not God, she's not good at being God. She cannot do those things for my life. I have set her up to fail by placing myself in a me-first position. And when we do that, personally, it will always fail. It will always be disillusioning, it will always rob us of the very thing that we're reaching for. We have done that as a culture. We have looked at God and said, God, you must make us happy, healthy, prosperous, and powerful. And God, I believe, would look at our culture and say, I answered those prayers. You are the wealthiest people group in the history of humanity as North Americans. You're the, you're the, you're the healthiest people group in the history of humanity as North Americans. You are the most provided for. When your number one or number two health epidemic is obesity, God has blessed your food. When we're all on a diet, we're all eating carrots and celery right now, God has blessed us. We have wealth, we have health, we have prosperity. We're the most powerful people group in the history of humanity. We have everything that we ever said that we ever wanted. And we are the most anxious people group on planet Earth right now. We deal with more anxiety than anybody else. We're the most depressed people group on planet Earth right now. There's more depression in North America than any place else. We lead the world in suicide. You know, one of the number one killers of 10 year olds in North America is suicide. 10 year olds. How can that be when we have everything that we would ever want from God by placing ourselves in a me first position? Because it's. It's not what we need. It's not even really what we want. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a person, but in the end, it leads to destruction. It leads to death. Jesus comes in and he says, listen, this doesn't work. It's never worked. It's never worked. And it's not going to work for you. But I love you. And I want to give you an abundant life. But that abundant life has nothing to do with you getting everything that you want. It has to do with your soul being fulfilled and your heart being at peace and your eternity being invested well. But to gain that life, you have to lose this one. You have to hate it. It will not take you where you want to go. But being my disciple will. But we're going to cut against every grain that is your instinct. My instinct is me first. When I sign up to make Christ first, I have to learn to do that. That's what discipleship is. It's learning to follow Jesus against a pattern of my own heart that I would never do on my own. When I have to tune out mom and dad And maybe what they valued is not what what God would want me to value. And it doesn't need, I don't even have to come from a broken home to come from a home that wasn't defined by Christ. When I have to stand alone, pick up my cross, life does not begin and end in high school. High school is a survival sport. Just get through it, right? But man, we're defined by it. We live for it. We find our identity in it. It's crazy. And then we take that to college. We take that to the marketplace. That's our life, a perpetual 17-year-old life. And Jesus says, I have something so much better for you, something so much more fulfilling for you, something so much more wonderful for you, something so much more valuable for you, but it's a radical turn. It's going to feel the equivalency of hating those things. But if you want to be my disciple, I have to come into this first place of affection. I have to come into this first place of authority. I have to come into this first place of of governance. And if you'll allow me to do that, I will give you more than you can ever ask or imagine. Something richer and better the thing that I actually came, lived, and died to give to you. Guys, I believe, I believe that in my life, in our lives, in the church, certainly in the culture, that there has to be an awakening to this. In our culture, there's gotta be the awakening. The culture's lost, so you're not gonna put those genies back in bottles, so it's lost. So when I say an awakening, I don't mean turning back the clock the way it used to be. I mean proclaiming the hope and the love and the truth of Christ in a clear and compelling way. There has to be an awakening within the church. If the church is a place of self-esteem building instead of spiritual strength and moral clarity and, and a clarity of what it means to love and the sacrifice that's involved with that, there has to be an awakening. In, in your life and in my life, see, there has to be an awakening of what we live for. I was looking at kind of my schedule and thinking about 2020, what's ahead of me, and, and I'm, I was looking at and I thought, I, I have no idea how I'm going to, live through this year. <laughs> because I start looking at things, and you're like, well, if I want to do this and I want to have that fun and I want to do this, then there's no way. And suddenly you have to realize if I'm going to live for Christ, I'm going to have to say no to myself to live a consequential spiritual life. I have to awaken to that truth. Not fight for what I want, but yield to what God is doing. We have to awaken. The people of God have to awaken and embrace and engage anew in what it means to be a disciple. Instead of weaving spiritual health and spiritual truths into our lives where they're convenient the scripture would say the people of God die to themselves and they live in Christ and to live for them is Christ and Jesus would look at that mindset and say right right you got it because exactly it you cannot be my disciple if these things govern you. You cannot be my disciple if you're ashamed of the gospel. You cannot be my disciple if you're holding on to earthly things and wanting me to make those better instead of giving everything, freedom to the Lord, saying, God, use my life the way that you want to use my life. It's what it means to come and follow me. Over the next few weeks, I want to try to give you handles on this, right? Because I, I know this is a lot, and I mean for it to be a lot, but I want to pastor you through it. So I want to walk through, and that's what these parables help with. They help us to walk through and kind of press into certain points of our lives. But this weekend, I wanted to try to, to, try to give you things that I like, carry out of the services with you. And so there were questions like this. I, I just tell you, it, if you're looking for like great inspiration, rah, rah, new year, it, you're not going to like the next month or so. <laughs> it's not going to play out that way at all. So th- these, these, these conversations, these are Jesus' words. They're not going to be mine. It's not me on a soapbox. But he's going to press in, and every one of us is going to get dinged. Every one of us. Because it's our human struggles, right? So maybe the commitment for this weekend is, is to take it. And to ask God to lower your defenses and to open your heart and say, God, I I will sit through and walk through these conversations and give you a freedom to mold me and shape me however you choose to do that. Maybe another handle for you is to make a decision as an individual and as a friend group and as a family to go four and one instead of one and four. In the fall, I told you that the average North American who's committed to church comes to church one out of every six weekends. That's the normal church attendance. Grace Church is way better. Our average is one out of every five. And so I double-dog dared you last fall to say, what if you made a decision that instead of going to church once a month, you decided this year you won't miss church more than once a month. Go, Go four and one instead of one and four. And it's shocking that when you get into a group, it's shocking when you go to the gym four times a week instead of once a month, what it does to you physically. It's shocking when you go to math class five times a week instead of once a week. It's shocking how you learn math. It's shocking what God does for you when we gather together the way that he tells us to. Right? So maybe it's a handle just as simple as that. And then here's the... Here's the big one. Maybe the handle is you making a decision today and talking to God and just saying, God, I'm, I'm actually very open to you challenging and changing my definition of what it means to follow you. And press into me, and I want to receive that because I, I need to quit dinking around with this. And be all in. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow you to do that with me, whatever that means to me, because it's gonna mean something different to each one of us. But I'm gonna make the decision that I'm gonna allow that to happen. And you change me and mold me into who you want me to be. Okay. Some things to grab a hold of this weekend, big conversation. But we're going to walk it through, try to get our head and our heart around it and get down to that Jesus's definition, not mine, that true definition, what does it mean to be a follower or a disciple of his, okay? All right. Jesus, love you so much. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that you challenge us, God. You you blow us up, but then you are a loving shepherd. You also walk us through. You literally illustrate what you mean. So thank you for that. And as we take this journey here for these next few weeks, thank you that you took the time with your gentle heart to put things in such a way that we can get our head around it. So help us to do that. Holy Spirit, you teach us and lead us and convict us and encourage us along the way. And these still moments, God, wherever we are today, would you meet us there And would you help us to open our hearts and our minds up to you? And would you gently lead us forward and to help us embrace the discipleship that you've called us to embrace? Begin that even now, Jesus, in your name.